This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael Glenn Moore. If you have an interesting life story and would like to appear on the show, please drop me a note at inacitylikeyours at gmail.com. Also, join our Facebook page at In a City Like Yours podcast to receive notices of new releases and other info. Now, please welcome today's guest. All right, my name is Joel Carroll. I am a 43-year-old recovering drug addict and alcoholic, and I am living out in Tucson, Arizona. So for the last eight years, I have dedicated my life to serving others in the community once I once ravaged being a drug addict. I was born in the 70s in Mesa, Arizona. My parents are high school sweethearts. My father was in the military and I had an older sister. And uh, by 1980, we had moved across the country to Virginia where he was stationed. And then we moved to Europe and Belgium. Belgium was exciting. I played soccer, the only American kid on the soccer team. I skied in Austria and the Alps. I was in a Mickey Mouse commercial in Amsterdam. So there were some fun things that I remember about Europe, but there was also some other situations that, you know, really affected me as a child. I, uh, at that time, the Armenian terrorist organizations were bombing Europe. And I remember every day at Afcent, it was a school from kindergarten to 12th grade. And we would get pulled out of school every day from bomb threats. And as a kid, it was cool. It it was fun because we get to joke around outside and we didn't have to go to class. But the more I would see all these bombings to the Turkish embassy, um, it became more surreal. And also at that point in my life, at about six years old, I ended up starting to have some feelings. We lived next to a graveyard and we would pass by that graveyard every morning to go to our school bus. And it was creepy, you know, uh, didn't have the English language on the gravestones. It was in an old chain link fence and it was right behind the houses in our, in our neighborhood. And it just seemed like every time I'd walk past it to and from school, like something was calling me from that graveyard. And I didn't understand it as a kid. At this point in my life, I also started stealing. I remember going to the little Dutch candy shop down the street with some buddies of mine from the neighborhood. And the one time my mom didn't give me Gilders 
which was the currency that they had in Belgium at the time, I remembered feeling left out. They bought their sweets. The little Dutch lady went to the back of her shop. And before I exited the candy shop and my buddies were asking me to leave with them, I ran back in there and I grabbed handfuls of candy and I ran out. And at six years old, that was the first time that I ever stole from anybody. And my addiction to stealing lasted 28 years. So I remember my father being TDY, traveling for the military. So it was my mother, myself, and my sister at home. I remember laying in bed one night and it felt like my mother or my sister or our dog, Cowboy, was in the room with me, but nothing seemed out of place. So it was early in the morning, about two o'clock, can't remember for sure, but I remember turning my head over and there was a demonic presence in my bedroom. And it was on all fours, on hoofs, almost a human head-like, had burnt flesh. And I was terrified and I remember wetting my bed. I remember pinching myself and it didn't go away. And I froze, I didn't wanna breathe. I didn't wanna take me, it to take me. And uh, I, I slid out the bed, I ran into the hallway and I threw up everywhere while I was still peeing. I was banging on my mom's door, begging for help. About 16 hours later, I was going to tell my best friend on the school bus what I'd seen because I didn't want to tell anybody about it besides my mom that had known about it. And before I was able to have the confidence to tell Michael that, you know, what I'm looking at out the window or why I keep staring away is because I had a demonic, a demon hovering over me in the bed. It, the bus stopped and he got off and I remember waving to him and his father and my father played fast pitch softball and they traveled to Greece, you know, and they would party. My parents were alcoholics, functioning. They'd go to work, come home and they would drink every night. And I remember waving to Michael without having the time to tell him what had happened to me. And a few hours later, when I was done with my homework, my mom walked over to me and she was crying and she had told me that Michael passed away from a bee sting to his throat. And Michael was allergic to bees. It was in his juice while he was outside playing. He drank it, it got stuck in his throat. He stung him and he died. So within those 16 hours, I was confronted with an evil being and then my best friend Michael passed away and I didn't understand life I didn't understand I've heard God I've heard of God didn't go to church too much but my mother would always talk about the Lord and I remember praying after that and no big voice came down no light shined down on my bed none of these happy feelings came over me and I was confused as a kid and then a little while later, after we found out we were moving back to the States, where my father was gonna be stationed back in Phoenix for a few years, I remember staring out the window over Holland and I started by the corner of my eye, I noticed there was shadows creeping from that graveyard from behind the houses down the road towards my home. 
And it was just the craziest thing. And I remember running down two flights of stairs to where the front door is. And there was a long window adjacent to the front door. And there was no black shadows. There was no huge black masses. But there was a ton of frogs just creeping up to my door, hopping up to the front door. And it was just the strangest thing ever, man. And then we ended up moving to Phoenix and started collecting baseball cards, sports cards, getting into the NBA, really didn't know too much about anything but soccer when it came to sports over there. And I was still baseball cards and basketball cards when my parents wouldn't give me money for it for, you know, allowance. So I, you know, my parents, you know, just a great kid. My son's a great kid. He, you know, he's an angel. He works hard in school and I could do no wrong. So I had a bunch of friends in the Phoenix, some girls, some guys. We ride our BMX bikes after school, go to the ice cream truck and just hang out, listen to like Iron Maiden. We listened to new R&B. We loved music. And I was the smallest kid in the group. I was smaller than the girls. I was smaller than everybody in my grade, smaller than kids in grades less than I was in. I remember a new kid came to the school and he had the same exact stature as I did, but he had blonde hair, blue eyes, and he was cocky as could be. Remember one day we were about to leave school and my buddy said, you're gonna fight him? Are you gonna fight him? Everybody said, you're gonna fight him. I know you're not a chicken. You got this, buddy. You got this, brother. And I didn't wanna fight him. I didn't know anything about fighting, but my father was a boxer in the military and he would travel and come home pick his, get his beer, get some nachos or something, sit in front of the TV and watch Mike Tyson boxing. He'd watch Roberto Duran, Hagler, Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard. That's really all I knew about fighting and I was terrified. I wanted to throw up, you know, and, and defecate on myself because I truly was afraid and I didn't know what to do. But at that time, The Karate Kid was my favorite movie. Ralph Macchio, I'd watch that movie a hundred, maybe a thousand times over and over again. So we're going to the ice cream truck where everybody hung out at. And when we got there, there was a huge circle with kids everywhere on a tee off green at the golf course. And they pushed me through that, that circle and everybody was loud and they were chanting. And, and that kid was standing right in the middle and he was just cracking his neck back and forth. You know, almost like the demonic entity did years prior in Europe, just swaying his head back and forth. And the kid was jumping up and down and 115 degrees outside. Kids are screaming my name, screaming his name. The girls in our little group are like, don't do it. You're gonna get in trouble. You don't wanna get in trouble. So I didn't know what else to do. And before he charged at me, I raised my arms up like Danny LaRusso did in Karate Kid, lifted my left knee up and everybody started laughing. And he charged at me like a bull. And when he came at me, I went for the kick and I thought I got him right in the chin and I missed. And everybody but the, the girls in my little group that I hung out with and a few of the buddies that I was hanging out with, everybody was laughing at me and, and, and joking with me. And, you know, you think you're the karate kid, what a loser, you know? And I started crying on the ground and I remember the kid walking over to me and saying some mean things. And, when that happened, something started to take over me. And the, I couldn't hear anybody's voices anymore. I could hear his and then his went away. And the next thing you know, my buddies are pulling me through the fairway 
by my backpack telling me to run. And I didn't realize why we were running, but I turned around and there was like five, four or five kids standing over a body and had no idea what was going on, but it was the kid that I was fighting and I don't ever remember hitting him. So we run, I go home, we separate. I don't know what's going on. The next morning we go to school and there's two police law enforcement vehicles at the office at the elementary school. So I go to my classroom and everybody was quiet and they all turned their head and my teacher said, you know, Joel, would you like to walk with me to the office? So I did and I was terrified. And I went in there and my father was traveling again and my mother was in there. She should have been at work. I would have been at work if, you know, this situation didn't unravel like it did. And I go in there and I got two of my buddies in the office and different offices in the, in the main office and they're pointing, they're pointing at me. The whole time I'm telling my mom, like, I never got, I never hit him. He never hit me. I don't know what's going on here. And principal came in, law enforcement came in and they're saying, well, your buddies over there and other witnesses are saying you picked up a painted rock off the tee off green and you attack the kid with it and you wouldn't stop beating him. I was baffled. I had no clue on what they were talking about. So my punishment was I was to go to go straight home from school, not to hang out with my friends. I was on restriction and from the school, I had to do in-school suspension and do all my work the entire day inside the office in a small cubicle. I remember leaving that cubicle the next day and I walked out and the sun was bright and I remember waiting for my friends so I could just say, hey, love you guys. I'll see you guys tomorrow. This sucks. But the kid that was in the hospital, his buddies walked up to me. And they started taunting me, calling me crazy. You're a weirdo, what a freak. You're not no karate kid, what's wrong with you? And I just wanted my friends to come up so I can kind of change my mode. And they made me very uncomfortable. Again, smallest kid in the grade. I snapped, I chased them. They were shooken by it and they took off running, but I just followed them into a cul-de-sac across the street and they got into a, a vacant house. It was a nice house and the door was open. They slammed the door on my fingers, but I wasn't crying from the pain. I couldn't feel it. Then I looked through the window in the front of the house and they were calling my mom names. They were calling me a weirdo and a freak. And I remember like clenching my jaw so hard that my teeth could have shattered. And my buddy Ryan was running down from the school where, where the buses were. And he was just yelling, no, don't do it, Joel, don't do it. And I remember looking at him and then looking at the kids in the window and then going back and I just punched through the window without thinking about it, pulled one of the kids out and I wanted to stab him with a piece of glass. His buddy grabbed him, my buddy grabbed me and it was over just like that. There was still glass falling from the large window. And the police were at my house that afternoon. I never messed with anybody. I was friends with everybody. I was not always intimidated by size, but I did always feel like I had to prove a point to fit in. I was confident, I was kind, but when I get uncomfortable, 
something changes in me and that's been going on for 33 years now. So we end up moving from Phoenix back to Virginia where my father is now stationed at the Pentagon and I am all in on playing basketball. Smallest guy again in the grade, but I can play. People will call me John Stockton from the Utah Jazz. Hated the team, hated the guy. I was a Phoenix Suns fan. But I could pass my butt off and I love basketball. I played Little League Baseball, I was in karate. And nothing happened. You know, I was still stealing baseball cards. That was really the only thing I would ever steal. And then by the end of grade school, my parents decided they wanted to get some land in Northern Virginia, not in the neighborhood. And instead of me going to my sister's high school, where all my friends were for the last two and a half, three years, the school zoning was to say that 100 or 100, 200 feet from our front door, if we had lived on the right side of those mailboxes on a dirt path, I would have went to Woodbridge. But instead, because we lived over there, my sister could continue to go to Woodbridge, but I myself would have to go to a different high school further off, and it was called Garfield. I would always go through the anxiety of moving, the depression of moving, the depression or the fear of the unknown, or will I have friends in this new state, this new country? Parents would work hard, come home, they'd get hammered. We had a good home. They just love to get drunk. There was no abuse in my home. Father really didn't talk about too much. But our gateway to any conversation between my father and I was sports. Besides that, we really didn't talk about anything else. So now I'm in this new high school and I'm terrified. I walk in. I am shocked at how many kids are in there how there's gangs, how people already solidified. The, the girls in there had bodies like the Playboy models and the magazines I was stealing from my daddy when I was 12 years old. I was intimidated by every means. And I would sit in the cafeteria and just observe and watch. And outside of school, I would continue to go down to the rec center and play basketball where I could walk down there. It was less than a mile away. I remember watching these guys play basketball on the long side of the gym. All the kids and the people that weren't that good would play on these small three rims on one side of this huge gym. And the guys that could play, they were on a full court on the other side. So when I wasn't playing, I would sit on the bleachers and sit back and watch how these young men carried themselves. And I've only seen it like in the movies where they have beautiful girls coming in, they would bring up food, there was younger guys coming in, showing their love, their pride, their allegiance to them. I was like taken back, like, wow, these guys are cool. It'd be awesome to be able to play with these guys one day. That afternoon, that evening, when the sun was going down, I dribbled the ball back up the road. I went home, there was a car in the driveway. And I'd never seen it before. I go in, I take my shoes off, put my basketball down, and I look over by the fireplace, and two of those young men that were playing basketball on that side of the court were talking to my father, my mother, and my sister were sitting next to one of them. Like I was shocked, I didn't know what to do, so my dad was like, JR, come here, bud. 
I walk around there and he introduced me to my sister's boyfriend and one of his buddies. And after that day, my sister's boyfriend took me under his wing. And though they were gangsters, he never wanted me to become a gangster or become affiliated with he or anybody that he was affiliated with. So I tried out for the basketball team in high school and I was outmatched in every way. These guys were taller, they were faster. Baseball, they hit harder, they pitch faster. Soccer, they were just more athletic. And instead of continuously practicing and doing all this, I ended up going to my parents' liquor cabinet one morning before they went to work, pouring their liquor into a small cup. I walked over to my mother's ashtray and I got depressed because I didn't even make the first cut trying out on the basketball team. I lit up my first cigarette and I took a swig of that drink and that lasted 19 years. The size I was, I still wanted to prove a point that I belonged somewhere on this planet. And if it wasn't gonna be on the basketball court, the baseball field, soccer field, karate or judo, I was damn sure gonna make a print somewhere. And my sister's boyfriend drove me around to Washington, D.C. He would take me to Georgetown Hoyas games and I would watch Allen Iverson. Even though he was dating my sister, he had plenty of women everywhere. Nice car, jewelry, women, it's enticing. My parents thought that I was playing basketball after school every day. Some, some parents almost locked their kids down because of fear. Mine gave my sister and I leash, but they gave us so much leash that her and I broke the leash and ended up going to some dark places. And when people noticed that I was hanging around my sister's boyfriend, and I started playing basketball with some of the younger guys in high school that were affiliated with the gang, they started to notice me and I started to have some more confidence on opening up and just talking to people more. And I was cool with people in different neighborhoods, different gangs. Got in a relationship with a beautiful girl right after I lost my virginity to my next door neighbor. And that became an addiction immediately. I was never faithful to my girlfriend, but the alcohol continued just to give me the greatest confidence that I'd ever known. And females in high school like that. And then these guys that I was playing basketball with started inviting me over to their neighborhood where my girlfriend lived. And I would walk through these neighborhoods and I was definitely uh, outcast in those neighborhoods and people could point me out without even looking and people would pull up in their trucks, put guns in my mouth. Another instance, another guy put a gun to my head when I was hanging out on the corner. They were trying to scare me away from the neighborhood because I didn't belong in their eyes. But I didn't go anywhere. I kept going, I kept going. And then eventually one of my best friends that I would play basketball with, he got affiliated in the gang that I wanted to get affiliated with. And he could no longer talk to me about certain things. And I knew that going in that once they crossed that line, it was different. They were like soldiers. They weren't going to talk to me about the everyday things that he and I were talking about and everybody in the neighborhood 
would talk to me about. A lot of jealousy. My girlfriend was beautiful and other guys from different gangs wanted to hook up with her. So there were a lot of fights, a lot of fights. And the alcohol really, really magnified my stupidity and my courage. I remember my girlfriend wearing a jacket from another student when we were not on good terms and I grabbed her by her hand and I broke her thumb. It wasn't on purpose, but I don't think when I get uncomfortable. So I remember we were on good terms after that and it took a while, but I was walking down the hallway with her and I was wearing a hoodie back in the early 90s wearing headphones. They weren't these nice headphones you put in that are like a half inch, inch long. These were big headphones and they were attached to your head. I remember this teacher walked behind my girlfriend and I, she grabbed my hoodie, not knowing I had headphones on and kind of choked me with the headphones. I didn't know who it was, but they put their hands on me. I turned around, I grabbed her by the bangs and I hit her skull against a brick wall. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't know who it was. If I knew it was a woman that had somebody's grandmother, I wouldn't have done it. Like, I don't like people putting their hands on me. Another instance, I was in school, first class, and I was smoking formaldehyde. Smoking a ton of pot, smoking formaldehyde. You dip the, the marijuana in it or some tobacco in it, let it dry, you smoke it, it just, it's not good for you. And, and for somebody like me that has rage and doesn't know how to control their actions, definitely did not need any kind of chemicals like that in my body. So my buddy, he ended up getting an argument with this other kid and I was cool with the other kid as well. And I said, hey, leave him alone, stop, let's not do this. You don't want none of this, just calm down. After this class was out, everybody knew about it. All the students would run up and make a circle. And my, my buddy that was in the gang, he ended up hitting this kid so hard three times, he kind of slid into a corner of the hallway. And I just kept suggesting, don't keep talking. It's not gonna be good for you, man. And he said something to me and I don't remember what it is, but I snapped. He made me uncomfortable. And I went over there and I kicked him as hard as I could in the forehead with my boot. And I sent him to the hospital for a, a long time. And I got kicked out of school for that for a while. I didn't know what was going on in my life. Went from playing sports, talking to people about stats of Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL. I could talk stats with any adult. Collecting baseball cards. Very, very good at that. Trading cards. To playing basketball. And, and outside, we had a lot of land. So having friends over playing baseball or flag football. To none of it. The drinking, having sex, and committing acts of violence. At this point, my parents still thought I was good. That's my angel, you know, but what's going on with them? And then I heard they were gonna initiate young men into this gang. So I had a buddy of mine drop me off. And I walked up stairs at a, at a park and there was dozens of men in the woods. When I walked up those steps, courageous and all, he said, what the hell are you gonna bring to the table? Before I could open my mouth, somebody moved him out the way and they hit me in my head so hard, I couldn't open my mouth for a week and I'm colorblind, red, green colorblind. And I saw orange out of one eye for hours and purple out of another eye for hours. And they gave me a concussion, one hit. They laughed at me and said, you don't belong here. 
more depression, more rejection, making a fool out of myself. But instead of giving up like I did on sports, I continued to drink, smoke weed, and from out of high, continued to hang out with these guys. And I started bringing guys from different gangs, real small street gangs, to my brother, my, my sister's boyfriend's gang. I was like, that's a killer. So I'd bring them to the table, introduce them, and they would initiate these guys. One by one, they were initiating all these guys that I was bringing to the table. And my sister's boyfriend was like, you know what? I'm gonna give you an alias, the omen, O-M-E-N. You're the omen. In my eyes, I'm like intrigued because I was born on Friday the 13th, weekend of a full moon back in 1978. I'm a Libra, which is, you know, the scales, evil versus good in my eyes. And it was like a balance between good and evil. And as soon as he gave me that alias for bringing guys to the table, even though he didn't want me affiliated, it changed my life. I remember getting so far down in, in, into my goal of becoming affiliated. I started selling drugs. Started going to parties a lot. Started doing stupid things to prove a point that I belonged. If you threw, told me to throw a rock through a window when somebody was eating dinner, I would throw a rock through a window when somebody was eating dinner. I ended up not staying at my parents' house anymore. And I ended up sleeping on the floors, couches, sometimes girls' front porches, under their porch, always because I felt like I was gonna miss something. But every time the night was over, everybody else went home. I don't know why I, I, I didn't have it like that. I always felt like I was gonna miss something out there. And for the life of me, I struggled mightily. I would walk around with a backpack, living out of a backpack in high school. And people's families adored me. They would let me in, they would let me stay with them, and then I would go to the next family. I ended up staying or living with 48 different families in my life when I had a wonderful home to go to. Fire in the fireplace, great food, love, whatever I wanted. But I just never made it back home. And eventually I got affiliated. I wasn't taking no for an answer. And boy, did I get what I signed up for. I ended up committing a lot of crimes on a Halloween night in Northern Virginia, still in high school. And going home and me walking in my parents' home, the change I was wearing boots, fatigues, all black. I go straight up the stairs trying to avoid my parents after committing all these crimes. My dad said, bring your ass downstairs. We need to talk to you. I remember it vividly, the fire was crackling. It was fall on the East Coast. And he said, you're not, not going to high school anymore. You are now going to Arizona and you're living with your grandparents in Apache Junction. I said, the hell I am? What the heck is that Apache Junction? That's where folks retire. And they go into a 55 and over community. And that's where my parents were sending me and my father wasn't taking no for an answer. And I remember fighting that because 
I had opposition defiant disorder, which means anything you encourage me to do, I would do the opposite because I don't like people telling me what to do. But my spirit told me, look what you just did for the last four or five hours out there. If there's any time you need to leave the state, it is right now. So though me and my girlfriend, who I love dearly at that point, and we weren't on good terms, but the thought of her going out and being with other guys, it destroyed me. But I packed my suitcase and I went. And I enjoyed my time at my grandparents' house and I love them dearly. But an addict's an addict. As soon as they left to go bury his mother, my great-grandmother, and my relatives, <clears throat> my relatives were going my relatives were coming to pick me up to take me to Scottsdale the next day. I ended up going through my grandparents' house and stealing their guns. Stealing my grandfather's flask and I justified everything by putting a gun back and taking one and he's not an alcoholic, I am. He doesn't need the flask, I do. I didn't destroy their house. I was very clean, very organized. And I went to Scottsdale, got my first job at Little Caesars back in 97. Got my GED, no problems at all. But I ended up huffing paint with some kids that my cousins were, were hanging out with and doing drugs and, and drinking. I got caught. They found the gun, they found the flask, they found some other items in the home. And I got sent to a different family down in uh, outside of Tucson. And I went down there and all I did was sleep with my cousin's girlfriend and smoke pot with one of my uncles. And then I got passed over to somebody else in the city of Tucson. And that's where I picked up methamphetamine for the first time. That world got real, real evil real quick. I didn't want no parts of it. A lot of stuff happened in that situation in that time. A lot of violence, a lot of sick stuff. And I knew, my spirit told me, you needed to get the heck out of Dodge. And I flew back to uh, Virginia, homeless. Had some brothers of mine in the gang pick me up. Because I was homeless, I was going from house to house again, sleeping on floors, sleeping with whatever girl would let me. It was just self-sabotage. My father asked me, did you Listen to your uncle in Scottsdale about joining the military. I said, yeah, I heard him. He said, why don't you join the military, son? You go active duty, you don't have to worry about anything. You go Virginia Army National Guard because of your grades and not having a diploma. We'll let you stay with us. Go get a job. On the weekends, you could go down there to Fredericksburg and you can do what you need to do. And I did that. I put my mind to something. I could achieve anything. For the life of me, I didn't want to stop using. I got honorably discharged within the first year. My mom was so broken, so hurt. She ended up destroying my room, breaking all the pictures, pulling drawers out. She, was, she just didn't know what to do. I was her baby boy. I could do no wrong. And for the first time in my life, in 1998, she gave up 
but she continued to pray for me. That year, I had nowhere to go, so I ended up setting up equipment for uh, bands in Northern Virginia, playing in DC, Maryland, all the way down, hours away in Richmond. It gave me something to do, gave me somewhere to go. Then I'd end up at one of the band members' house or one of the girls that was at the party or whatever at the club. I'd stay with them and I'd live each day as if it was my last. There was a fight broke out at one of these clubs. Gunshots rang out. I remember one of the older guys in my gang, one of my older brothers, he did the distress call. I ran on stage, opened the keyboard bag and started handing out pistols. At that point, I was on two pills of ecstasy, a bottle of Canadian mist and a joint of formaldehyde. I remember turning around to go back to the stage and somebody from the corner of my eye, somebody was gonna hit another person with a 17 inch law enforcement issued Mac light. Somebody else pushed him. He was like, nah, don't do that, man. He's cool. The guy grabbed it. He threw it as hard as he could to break it against the brick wall. I was in the way. He broke my skull. I couldn't move. I could think, but I couldn't move. The lights were on, but I thought the lights were off. People were screaming. Omen got shot because there's still gunshots outside the club. There's blood everywhere. I was paralyzed. They sent me to a hospital. There were so many gang members in the waiting area and fights were breaking out in there. A scuffle, something happened out there to where the doctor came in, shaved my head just in that area, pulled my skin back together, put sutures in it and sent me on my way without paperwork, without a CT scan, without any of that stuff. And I'm back on the street with the stroke. I didn't even know it. I never knew I had a stroke till 10 years later when I got a car accident. But the pain was so bad. And my lack of trust from hospitals for just sending me on my way while I stuttered for six or seven months, I started doing cocaine. And I did cocaine for years after that. Now I'm drinking, doing cocaine, smoking formaldehyde, doing LSD as if it was never gonna be on the planet again. I did probably 150 hits of acid. Staying in somebody's basement. Mom's still crying, wondering where I'm at. I remember slowly moving around, not trusting people. And I didn't want to fight anymore because I'm still very, very, very small in stature. And I remember a female calling my buddy's house in the basement. I answered, she's like, I'm pregnant. And I was like, oh man. And I was hung over, waiting for more cocaine, more alcohol, didn't have it, hung over. I said, I'll call you when I feel better. Okay. And I hung up. I rested my head, waited for my buddy to come home with more dope and more alcohol just so I could get up. And the phone rang again, I answered it. There was a girl crying on the phone and she too says she's pregnant with my child. 
unlike the first female, which was a friend of mine, and we would just have sex and wouldn't talk about life or ambitions or anything like that. This other girl that I'd met after I had a stroke had a wonderful family. Father was in the Navy out of Bethesda, Maryland. A lot of money, still in high school. She was devastated. She was afraid. She didn't know what to do. So now I'm shocked. Still got tremendous pain, pain in my brain. Hung over. I got two females saying that I'm going to be the father of their child, their children. Ten minutes later, I hear my buddy coming down the stairs. Somebody's banging on the back door, and it was a home invasion. Guys ran in the room, beat him up, threw him across the room, put a gun in my face, and I'm hiding like a baby in the corner because I don't want to get hit in the head again. Terrified. Terrified. The next day, we went out looking for these guys. And before they dropped me back off at my buddy's house in the suburbs, we got pulled over at a McDonald's. They pulled all of us out of the, the minivan. And during that time, across Virginia, from where I was going to get dropped off, the two guys that ran in the house came back. They were hiding in the backyard. And three of my buddies go there, four of my buddies go there. And when they jumped out, my buddies just beat the life out of them. And they ended up almost comatose, these two guys. But if we hadn't got pulled over 30 miles away, I would have been dead. I would have been dead. And at that point, there were so many situations where life was just waiting for, death was just waiting for me. And for the life of me, I wouldn't get it together, man. I remember going to Florida doing a bunch of crank, just to get away. Doing a bunch of crank and drinking moonshine. Sleeping around with a bunch of girls at the trailer park and then women with houses and passing STDs around like it was nothing because I didn't think I would live another day. The entire time my head hurts. Anytime I get stressed out, my head was hurting and I still hadn't seen a doctor about it. I go back to Virginia doing the same old things and I go to Fort Belvoir Army Base and for the first female that called me, I was there to watch her deliver our child. When I went in, they said, sorry, it's not your child. She's not gonna allow you back in the room and she's very sorry. So I called her from a payphone, and she was crying. She's like, I'm sorry, I wanted it to be yours. For me, I took everything, every resentment all about me. Like, how could she? How dare she have a kid with another dude? She wasn't even my girlfriend. So I made it all about me again. And then I had a resentment over that, so I went out and got high. The second child, I didn't make it to the hospital, of course. And the beautiful little girl ended up being mine. That was on September 26th, 2000, or 1999. My daughter's 22 years old today. 22 years old. Try to get it together. Try to get it together. Got jobs, working at a car wash, detailing cars, very good at it. But I'd spend all my money on alcohol and drugs. 
sleeping around with different females and sleeping on different people's floor. Two gang members said, why don't you join us and pull off a jewelry store heist and we can make all this money because we know you need it as well. And they trusted me enough to do that, but I didn't trust the situation or one of the individuals that was asking me to be a part of it. My daughter's mom was asking me for money, come over, spend some time with us. She wanted a relationship with me. I didn't want to be in a relationship and I didn't know how to talk to people about my emotions. My ego, my pride would not allow me to talk about my feelings. So I stuffed them, kept getting high and I went against good judgment. I went against the spirit and it said, don't do it. But again, even against the spirit, had opposition defiant disorder. And if the spirit says, don't do it, I'm gonna do it anyway. Like I'm gonna prove to you, I can do this. So I dressed in all black, put on a mask and we went up in a jewelry store. And all of a sudden the girl that's sitting on the parking lot, she's on a two way Nextel phone saying, police are coming, police are coming. I made my escape. Everybody got incarcerated, but me. The next day I went to Florida on a Greyhound and I stayed with a woman that I was sleeping with, but she was now in a relationship with one of the guys that beat the two guys that did the home invasion. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna respect that. I don't want no problems with this guy. But now everybody else is incarcerated and I know they're gonna tell on me. From my past experiences, I don't trust them and I, I know I shouldn't have did it, but I did it anyway. Call my parents, I lied to them. Called my daughter's mom, lied to them all, and said, I'm helping move somebody to Haines City, Florida. They didn't believe me. But my father did tell me he was going to lose his security clearance at the Pentagon after working hard for all those years because I was a felon on the run and a known gang member in Northern Virginia. It took me a little while, but I got on that bus and I took my butt back to Virginia and I turned myself in. That's a whole other story, being incarcerated. But those shadows came back on me and I was clean and sober when I was incarcerated. I entered a faith-based six-month program. And within the hour, there were shadows coming out of the walls and the floor and they ended up dragging me through a hallway into the darkness. 30 seconds later, I opened my eyes and everything was so-called normal. Everybody else was asleep. The CEO hadn't left. He was still standing in the doorway. The, the, off, the lights on his, in his office were still on. And he pointed at me. And I went in there and he started reading the Bible to me and I was crying like a baby and I was looking over my shoulder for these shadows that were pulling me away to hell. I graduated that program. I changed my ways. But the second temptation confronted me out on the street, it was, it was a wrap, it was over. I was on probation. Didn't do a bunch of hard drugs, but I was drinking. And we say in recovery that one is too many and 1,000 is never enough. A lot went on in the next few years. A lot went on. And I met a new girl, beautiful young woman in college. Had a lot of goals, wanted to achieve those goals. And I 
Against her wishes, I moved in with her and two other females that went to George Mason University and uh, started doing a lot of ecstasy while I was living with them. I had a lot of plans to murder the people that testified against me when I was incarcerated. I forgot to say that, but they went on the stand. Besides the female that was in the car, my two so-called buddies testified against me on the stand. And that just set off a chain of events to where I just wanted to kill these guys. I just couldn't believe that they asked me to do it and they turned around and told on me and pointed me out, left me in there. So for the next 15 years, that's all I thought about was killing these guys. So after a year and a half relationship with this female, it just didn't work out in the worst of ways. 9-11 happens. My father's in the Pentagon. My father's in the building during the attacks. I was so high on cocaine at work that when my brother-in-law ran next door to get me, he said, JR, JR, the Twin Towers are going down and the Pentagon got, got attacked. We got to go to your parents' house and, and be there for your mom. This guy my sister had married wasn't the guy that I was looking up to on the streets. She left him. They had kids and she made a good life for herself. She just stopped hanging around those people. And I looked at him, I was like, who the hell are you talking to, man? I'm waiting for my dope dealer. I'm not going out there and meet my mom to console her about my father that could be dead. I need more dope. And he looked at me like, what the hell? I'm an addict. I need another sack. Once I get that, I'll figure it out. The DC sniper, Muhammad and Malvo, go around the metropolitan area sniping people. It's all over the news. We couldn't pump gas without dancing. We literally would pump gas while running around and jogging around the car, trying to stay away from the gas pumps in case they wanted to shoot the gas pumps. But to me and the people I grew up with, we're used to that kind of chaos, catastrophic events. And the people we, were, we knew were going to funerals all the time. People were killing themselves left and right. Guys that we we're hanging out with, like you didn't need enemies when you had the friends you had because everybody was killing each other because of jealousy. A Vietnam veteran got killed by the DC or Beltway sniper across the street from our apartment in Manassas, Virginia. And I heard it. I heard the echo, went out. We were telling the girls to hush it down a little bit and we went out. We got a silly city full of emergency personnel surrounding this gas station, this Sunoco uh, by 234, Route 234 and it was chaos. But I kept doing what I was doing. My girlfriend left me. She started dating one of the guys that testified against me. I wanted to kill him, kill him even more so. So I moved away from any suburb, any city, and I went deep into the backwoods of Virginia where I knew a family. The family owned the road. They didn't need to be a gang. They were just a big family that you didn't want to mess with. And I started going down there selling crack cocaine. And eventually my depression got to me enough I started smoking crack. That addiction lasted four or five years. It was bad. 
started sleeping with an older woman that was smoking crack. She held a job, had a nice car, had a home. Not your stereo, stereotypical crack fiend that I knew of. My sister's best friend, who was the leader of her people, you know what I mean, from high school, he executed himself after he gave me artillery to go out and handle my business with these other guys. But the second I smoked crack, I wasn't thinking about revenge at all. I had talked to three individuals about going after the people that testified against me, people in different gangs, guy I went to high school with and my sister's best friend. One got killed execution style in a bathtub of two other guys. While I was almost going there to play spades, January 2nd, 2002. Pain in my head was so severe, something I knew was off. I said, no, I'll catch you later, brother. He got executed naked in his bathtub. I started on the news the next day. Sister's best friend killed himself and the guy that I was incarcerated with from a different gang that I ended up respecting a lot. He ended up getting murdered before the two of us could go do what we were gonna do. So you fast forward back to my crack addiction. It was a mess, man. It was a mess. And the lady owed these two dealers from Maryland some money. Instead of running away and this guy telling me, don't go down there, man. Don't go down there. They're going to kill you. I said, man, don't tell me what to do. Opposition defiant disorder. I'm not scared of these dudes. Two guys in their 50s. Been selling a lot of dope for a lot of years. I go down there to hand me some wild turkey. Head still hurting from years prior from that stroke. Call your girlfriend, call your lady friend. I said, it's Friday, she gets paid. You know, she has a job. She's not gonna screw you guys, man. Hey, we like you. We like her, but we need that money now. I pull out my phone, call, she doesn't answer. I'm like, she'll be here guys. I took another swig, handed it back to one of the men. Saw the porch light kick on at my buddy's house up the hill where I was staying at that point. I had my pit bull there. He had all his pit bulls. Those like porch lights just kicked on. Just open the door. My dog will smell me. All the dogs will come down and these guys will be like, oh man, oh shoot. Be good dogs, be good. And then I would have kind of been saved there, but it wasn't meant to be that day, man. I called again, then I felt the evil manifesting around the entire environment. And the guy that was sitting in the chair next to me, this old, cracked addict he was scared for me he was terrified for me and I started to feel it and the sun was going down man I saw one of the guys open the back of their truck the back door I didn't see the guy handle the bottle tube but by the time I kind of looked to my left he hit me where I already had a stroke fell off the cinder block he picks up the cinder block and he hits me in my ribs with it I defecate on myself they drag me to the truck I squirm I squeal I try to get away when I finally got away, one of the guys had a gun barrel straight to my forehead, and he said, in some certain words, we like you, but I'm gonna murder you right now. Now get in my truck. So I slide in there, I'm embarrassed. You know, I smelled, I apologized. His cousin got in, they drove off the, the paved road to a dirt road. I'm not bawling but I am definitely crying and there's tears dropping down in my damn pants. And I'm looking up at the moon now and I'm like trying to forgive, ask God for forgiveness for every sin I've ever committed, but there were so many I didn't know how to focus and I wanted my daughter, I wanted her mom, I wanted my mom. 
too late. They pulled off the dirt road to where there was no road. I remember thinking about Timmy, an Irish guy, was five years older than me, that was my sister's boyfriend's best friend. And how my two best friends, when I was in the gang, went to Alabama and they executed them on the side of the highway and they left them there and nobody found them for two months. I knew they were gonna kill me. And then the guy that was driving his phone rang and it ended up being my lady friend. The guy in the back started chuckling. He said, everybody around here says you're a special kid. And he was like, damn. 100 more feet, his phone wouldn't have worked. He was about to be dead. I started bawling at that point. I wasn't controlling it no more. The disease, the insanity of the disease of addiction is 15 minutes later, I cleaned my draw, I threw my drawers away, my boxers. I cleaned myself and I went back to smoking crack. But I left the woods. I left the woods. I left my pit bull. I went to Manassas. Took a buddy of mine's house, got kind of closer to real life, not hiding anymore. Never dealt with anything in my life, not even the demons as a child. My best friend's death when I was a, a youngster. Anything. Never dealt with anything. A few houses down was his aunt and uncle, good people, but they smoked crack too. Ended up working with his uncle. Being his side man, whatever he needed, electrician, build pools, whatever you needed, we can do it. And I'd do whatever he said, and I'd make money, get drunk with him, and I'd smoke crack. And then a female that I met years prior that I stayed in contact with called me. And I ended up inviting her to my buddy's house with his wife and his kids. And I had a sense of peace. This isn't a 50-year-old drug addict. Not saying my lady friend wasn't a good person because she was a wonderful person, but she wasn't the kind of female that I was accustomed to being around that had ambitions, that had goals, that was really going to do something with their life. And I felt a sense of peace in that. But she would come over all the time. And we ended up dating. And I had nowhere to go. My buddy got evicted. His family got evicted. And they got into a small apartment now. And, they, you know, it's just not a good idea for me to be sleeping on their couch when they got three kids and they got marital issues. And though I was helping them a lot with a lot of things, it just wasn't for that season. And I ended up homeless again and got a job with my brother-in-law selling appliances. I ended up like Robin Hood in my eyes, going around to these underprivileged neighborhoods and giving appliances away selling them for crack money. And this young woman opened, and her mother, who worked at the Pentagon as well, ended up letting me in their home. Had no idea that I was a crack addict the entire time. They knew I was a horrible alcoholic. They knew that. That kind of covered up for 11 years to my now wife. Me being able to do dope all the time because I was such a bad alcoholic, I just tell her I just couldn't stop drinking. They asked me if I wanted to leave and move to Louisiana where they're from. And I fought it. I can't leave my daughter here. My parents are like, you're never around your daughter. 
don't justify everything in your head. If somebody asks you to do something to, to better your life, do it. And I battled with it. So I did a lot more dope. Then I packed a Penske truck with a buddy of mine and we moved to Shreveport, Louisiana and I was detoxing from dope and alcohol the entire ride. My intentions were authentic. I was gonna change my life and get in my daughter's life. Reality was tricky. Got my job at a pool company. I built swimming pools in people's homes, outside of homes. I could do it all as a helper. The guys on that crew were smoking crack. I had no chance. My self-will was never strong. I became a crack fiend the entire time I lived in Louisiana. Again, my girlfriend at the time was driving around the city like every other state, looking for me and would find me under a bridge somewhere. Hurricane Katrina hit, I smoked crack. Hurricane Rita hit, I was smoking crack. Wasn't worried about anybody like in 9-11, you know, let's make the neighborhood better. Let's, let's make sure my dad's okay, which he was okay, but I, I wasn't there for them. Just like I wasn't with for uh, uh, there for my wife and their entire family when they were wondering where some family members were at. Got to a point at this time that I was thinking about suicide. My parents had left Virginia. My father had retired from the Pentagon. They moved to Tucson, Arizona. A lot of family in Arizona. My sister and her family, they ended up moving to Tucson, Arizona. And I got my parents, their three grandkids. Everybody's there. Now they're encouraging me to come home. We move home. I get a job at a swimming pool company in three days. Decent money, pool truck, credit card, gas card, cell phone, the works. Cleaning pools for prestigious individuals in the Southwest down here. I was doing pretty good for myself. We got a home, rent to own. Our house got broken into. I freaked out. The trauma from being kidnapped, the trauma from everything that happened in my past. I went to an uncle and said, hey man, let me get a little bit of methamphetamine. I can't sleep. I still wanna work, pay the bills. Just give me a little bit though, not a lot. I ended up calling him every day. Sitting on my couch, my wife's like, what's wrong? I, I freaking out because they kicked our door in, went through our house. It was random. I was seeing shadows come through the walls. People were coming in through the windows. It wasn't real. To me, it was. A really good cook of food, not meth. I said, you know what? I'm not doing dope anymore, drinking here and there, but I'm kind of doing okay with it. I'm gonna go to the Art Institute. I'm gonna learn how to really cook and I'm gonna become a chef like on TV. I did it. I was cleaning pools on the side, became a chef at the Ritz Carlton in Marana, Arizona, in the mountains. Most surreal thing ever, man. Beautiful. I'm a very spiritual person. Been through both good and bad had good spirits around me and I've got pictures of them hovering over me at the Grand Canyon and I've had the bad ones in jail and when I was young. It's like they were playing tug of war with my spirit and I didn't know it the whole time. So I'm kicking ass and taking names, man. 
Chef Joel, good morning, Chef. How are you, how are you doing today, Chef? Do you need anything, Chef? Couldn't believe it. Parents were happy. Mom was at peace. I'd quit drinking for a while because I was so ecstatic. Like, I was successful. Got in a bad car accident before that and got $55,000 in the bank. At one point, we had 72 grand in my bank account, in our bank account. We had CDs in the bank account so we could accrue some interest. Doing good. Then I picked up a drink. Got a DUI in front of a strip club with my uncle who sells methamphetamine, sold methamphetamine. Took my truck, took my license. I pleaded with him. I got an extreme DUI, got arrested. When I made it back to the house, I just sat in my garage crying. Bottle of whiskey, eight o'clock in the morning. My son gave me a baby boy, pregnant with another. Beautiful home. And I quit. I didn't quit drinking. Oh yeah, I did, but I quit life. Parents came over, I said, I quit. Executive chef, no, sous chef called, said, hey, Joel, you coming in, you okay? I said, no, I'm not okay. You coming in this morning? No, I'm not, I quit. I hung up the phone. My family was shocked, they were crying. And I said, I quit, I quit life. I'm out of here. I went to a relative's home and I put the alcohol down. I quit drinking after 17 years. Became a full-blown methamphetamine addict. I wasn't doing a little bit. I was doing a lot. I had a lot of money in the bank. All the way to the point my wife had to file for bankruptcy, get rid of her nice car, take care of two little boys. Well, I'm out here with prostitutes jumping out of windows with axes and machetes because I couldn't handle my dope. They ended up sending me to psych hospitals. I'd get incarcerated, high-speed chase, driving on suspended. I'd eventually find my way to a mental hospital. This lasted to the day from when I got a DUI. February 8th, 2011, I got my DUI. 2013, on February 8th, I was released from a psych hospital again after almost committing suicide and jumping in front of a truck in front of the hospital. And I made it to my parents' house. At 34 years old, I was 107 pounds. Super paranoid guy, man. Everything that happened to me and the things I'd seen on meth. And I tapped out. Knocked on my parents' door at two o'clock in the morning. I said, I'm home. She said, I knew you were coming, son. I felt it. They opened their doors to their door to me. And I go in their backyard in the morning, I'd eat some good food, sleep in a warm bed like when I was a kid. And I realized I ran away when I was young and I never found what I wanted. It was at home the entire time. I'd went to the Salvation Army rehab for men. To thine own self be true, I knew I couldn't be around women. But I AWOLed both times. When I was at my parents' house, I said, take me, we're gonna go to rehab. My 
parent, my, my wife, my strange wife, she was walking on eggshells like everybody else, but she was like, okay, let's, you know, can't be a month rehab, Joel. You know, it's gotta be, you know, six months or more. Like you've been through a lot. So my pops took me to one that was three months with the opportunity to do more. And the second we got out of the truck, a girl walked by that was a client there. And I looked right at her, at her backside and was like, there's no way in my mind, she's already pregnant. Like, I can't deal with that. Like, we can't be here, pop. I need to go back to Salvation Army. He was like, let's go hear what they got to say. It wasn't any structure. My father was military. I was in the military for a little bit. I've been incarcerated, so I'm very structured, very organized, very clean. This place wasn't clean. There's women around and they had cell phones. I'm like, no, I need to go somewhere with all men, no cell phone, like none of that. I don't need porn. I don't need to be calling a freaking some kind of dealer. My dealer killed himself and the other one was in prison. So I'm like, I I'll find a way. Just I need to go somewhere, dad, that super duper structured, man. Please drive me down to the worst neighborhood in Tucson, South 6th Avenue. I'm a beg to go back to the Salvation Army. Been there almost 59 years. I went in there and said, there's a 20 man waiting list. I waited three weeks. I called them 20 times a day. They were getting so irritated. I'd wake up with a cup of coffee, a cigarette out in the desert, the sunrise, and I'd read Proverbs out of the Bible. Everything I read about was my methamphetamine addiction. It was evil. And I read about it every day. But I stayed clean for those three weeks. And on March 1st, 2013, they opened the door to me at Salvation Army and I never looked back. I went in there, I got a sponsor. I went in there, got on my knees and I handed my will and my life over to the care of God. And I learned so much about who I am as an individual because I didn't know who I was. I had to let the ego and the pride go. Graduated that program, man, I never got beneficiary of the week. I never got those accolades. If anything, I got written up six times in 10 days, but I didn't walk out of there. Somebody said, you graduate, brother. I'll give you a job at a car wash. I was humbled by it. Go from a chef at the Ritz Carlton to working at a freaking car wash, cleaning someone's rims while they're yelling at you because it's not clean enough. I'll take it. My wife allowed me to go back home. I worked at that car wash. Honest, open to learn, willing to do whatever it takes. I went to church every Wednesday at the Salvation Army. I went to a meeting, AA meeting. Right afterwards, like clockwork, right in the middle of the week to get my soul food and to get that spirit light lightened under my butt and, and to just recovery, recovery, recovery. Ended up running that meeting. I was a chairperson for that meeting. And it was outside because I have anxiety. It was under the stars, bonfire. It was wonderful. It got down to three men, four men. Next thing you know, I got 60 people around that bonfire because I know so many people out here. Then out of nowhere, somebody said, you need to work in the behavioral health field. Good Lord, the way you talk, bro. I said, I could do that. Got family members. You're not going to work at the Ritz Carlton again. You're not going to drink a beer ever again. You don't smoke weed, brother. No, I'm good. I'm retired. I have retired from the BS. I'm done. 
ended up getting a job in a mental hospital that I used to be a patient at, the one that I never wanted to be in. Police would take me there in handcuffs. Now I'm going in there and getting a paycheck. Crazy, it's mind blowing. Being an advocate for people that hear things, that see things, people that have rage, just like I do. Anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. I don't know why I'm anxious. I'm just an anxious dude, but it's okay. We don't have to run away because of it. 19 years of being an addict, a convicted felon, and the state hires me to walk in there to be an advocate for men, women, and children in these places out here. For the last eight years, I've done my best to be an advocate, a voice, a brother. My wife gave me four sons, and that hasn't been easy. Two years clean, one of my kids was dying in front of me at birth. He wasn't even breathing. Couldn't believe it. I felt like I was high. All the lights in the hospital room and all the doctors walking around and my son's not crying like babies do when they smack them on the bottom. Freaked out. I didn't think about getting high. I didn't think about going to getting a prostitute or robbing a freaking jewelry store. I prayed. January 2nd, 2015. Years after my buddy was executed in the bathtub, on the same day my son was born, and I prayed, and I picked up that 10,000-pound phone when people don't know what to do and their ego and pride get in the way, and I picked it up, and I called two brothers of mine that were at a funeral for a guy that relapsed and died on his first slam of heroin. And they came to the hospital and went out in the parking lot, and I cried like a baby because my son was dying. My son's seven years old. He turned seven a few days ago. He plays Little League Baseball. My nine-year-old was diagnosed with cancer four years ago when he was five. I didn't run away. I didn't go get a prostitute. I didn't go rob a jewelry store. I didn't go do it. I stayed. See my mother in ICU once. Couldn't go twice because of COVID. I'm a mama's boy, man. Sitting here watching her her die because she had two heart surgeries a lot of it because she stressed over me so damn long but I didn't run away I stayed and I sat with my dad and sitting here doing this here and I got my sons here I got a relationship with my daughter in Virginia it's a miracle man I'm very passionate I'm a very passionate guy and I want people to know around the entire planet that we're not alone. Whatever we're going through, there's human beings out there that understand what you're doing, but we're gonna have to get out of our own damn way, stop being anxious and walk into a room somewhere and talk about what's going on. Whether it's for a therapist or an AA meeting, NA meeting, HA, CMA, it doesn't matter. There's an A for everything. We just have to go. That ego and pride, it's got to go. I'm still small. I'm 5'4 on a great day. About to be 44 years old. Look like I'm 20-something, man. It's crazy. Now I work in a drug rehabilitation center, sponsoring guys. Like me, this guy. Like, no freaking, there's no way. Yeah, there's a way. We just got to get out of our own damn way. For past six years, I've been sometimes working in a psych hospital and a detox and a rehab. 
being there for my wife and kids while my wife deals with me with my rage and my depression and my PTSD and my anxiety, it didn't go away. None of it went away. But she's still here. You know, she's still here with me. And I come home and I sit down in front of a computer and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell my life story. I opened up a laptop not knowing what the hell to do with it. it. Took me 20 minutes to type one page. I ended up typing 300, 114,000 words, the way I like to talk, the way I can think without a high school or college education. And I put it on paper, submitted it out there, and I got, no, we're not going to read your story. You don't know anybody famous. No, you don't know anybody in New York City. No. You're not related to somebody in Hollywood. No, 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 no. Every, every week it was a no, and I just stay faithful. I'm going to be faithful. It's going to work out. I know it'll work out. So for the time being, I sent it to some of these other publishers that aren't like the big five, and I, I paid them to do my book, and they still don't take books. But all eight of them read it, and all eight of them said, damn. How in the hell are you still alive, kid? And I got it published out of Pennsylvania, September 13th. Funny thing is, it was on a Friday the 13th when it was released. I just did a Barnes & Noble's book signing. I did one at Hope City Church out here. I'm doing some podcasts. But more importantly, I'm here with my family. Taking this thing one second at a time. Trying to spread the word of recovery and God and anything else that's positive in our lives. I appreciate you letting me share my story. Well, what a story it is. A very, very moving story. Uh, I'm so happy that you've got to the point where you are now after going through so much. You know, uh, it's kind of funny too that you mentioned, because I live in Shreveport, and <laughs> just the fact that you touched on that briefly shows my listeners that the guests that I have are really from anywhere. Uh, any, you know, you could have been from anywhere in the United States and have gone through what you did, but, but what you went through was unique. And your your book now, you say it is published now? Yes, sir. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book itself? Is it just what you told me just now? Or, I mean, I assume you go into more depth with everything. Do you talk a little bit more about your prison experience? I do. It, it, it's so intricate, so deep, so powerful. It, it, it's, it could be a movie, man, the way it's written and the way I just took my time on accident, really, because I didn't know how to type fast, but I'm a very deep thinker. It goes so much into each situation that I brought up, but there's a hundred other stories in there that are just like it that I you know, didn't speak of right now. Well, let's go back and talk a little bit about people who you met and if they're okay. I, I want to know that your mom's okay. Did she make it through COVID? She did. Okay, she did, good. and she's at home here in Tucson with my uh, my father, and he finally retired. Oh, excellent. Okay, that's good to know. And and are you still with your wife? I am. Been married thirteen years. Been together almost twenty. That's fantastic. Okay, so I, you know, gosh, just hearing what you had to say. It just seemed like you were going through the, the worst of the worst and the 
to know that things have turned out good for you is is heartwarming i think uh, you know it's what I, I at least that's the way i feel uh is there anything else you want to talk about just people in recovery that suffer suffer from mental illness or traumatic brain injury you know that are feel like they're a little bit off or that they're too anxious to go into a grocery store or be like me walk around a grocery store and can't find anything but you've been there a thousand times because you're all in your head it's okay the best thing the the, the greatest thing that i've learned to do besides stop running away from all the situations that baffle me is to talk about it because the more we're able to talk about things the more we can get insight from other individuals that can relate to what we've been through and you found that through aa i did and in a NA, yep, all of them. Yeah. Um, so you you would suggest anybody who's going through what you're going through to, to go that route. I, I agree with you. I think those are great programs. And just the fact of getting into a program is, is you know, the, the right step, I think. You know, it may take a while, but once you get into it, stay with it, things have got to get easier, and they will get easier. Um, and, you, and you're a testament to that, that you've been, what would you say, 13 years now sober? Yeah, eight years. I've been thinking oh, sober, almost nine in, in okay, February. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's that's an achievement. Thank you. So how are your, your children doing? They're well. Okay. They're doing good. You know, um, I got one that I spoke about, plays Little League Baseball. He's really good. He's a small little guy, um, but he's, he's real good. He played one season because of COVID. They, they knocked one out. But he played last year, and he did very, very well. The coaches were um, impressed. And my youngest, he just does whatever he wants. He runs the house. He's five. And then my nine-year-old, you know, he's dealing with what he's got to do with health-wise, but we're doing everything we can with COVID to prevent anything to attack his immune system or compromise it. Um, but he plays is basketball. He, he's a basketball player, and he's phenomenal. And is he, he played, in remission? It's skin cancer, three different kind types. So um, we have a machine in our home that first of all the insurance companies didn't want to provide for us they wanted us to pay you know 10 grand but we just didn't have the means so just praying about it and not getting too bent out of shape about it and then me talking about it with people you know a few months later they delivered it so it's a uh, ultra violet therapeutic cabinet that he steps into and then he goes to the doctor a lot for like his eyes his eyes have issues and stuff like that but he's a he's a rock star man he very very good at basketball and um, my 12-year-old son plays the saxophone. He's a model. He models. He's going to go to L.A. And he's teeny as I was going into high school, man. He, he's modeling agencies. are like, oh, my gosh, what are you, eight years old? You're adorable. He's like, no, I'm about to be 13. They're like, that's even better. That means you're going to look young your whole life. So we, we're blessed. We are, we are truly blessed. And uh, it's a lot of work. How is but, your daughter doing who's in her 20s? She's good. She's in Virginia. Um, we flew out there and she was able to meet all four of her brothers. But I don't have the money right now to be able to fly out there when I can, especially paying six tickets to go. So my goal, you know, hoping and praying that, you know, moving up in this behavioral health field and selling this book that one of my greatest goals is to be able to fly to Virginia whenever we can so we can visit with her because it's like a dream. We're there and we're not, you know, and I can understand 
where she, you know, what she, how she feels when it's like the greatest thing ever when she's around her four brothers and her dad, and then we're gone. You know, we're back in the air flying away again. So, but she's, she's doing good. Beautiful young woman and uh, very smart, very intelligent. And she has a wonderful family back home. give a shout out to Ben, the editor of this show. Ben also has a podcast called Two Marks and a Spark. You can find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check it out. You won't be sorry.